What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk Splits. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And what an episode I have for you here today, because returning to the show, the Turn Out of Punk Splits MVP, doing two episodes back to back, actually just in general, the Turn Out of Punk MVP, well, also MVP, the wrestler MVP is also the MVP of the show, because he's been on a lot too, but my hero, my mentor, from the, formerly of the band Super Chunk, currently of the band Mountain Goats, and Bob Mould, John Worster is back on the show Part of the greatest comedy duo of all time, in my opinion, Sharpling and Worcester. And John is returning here to interview one of his musical heroes. I feel fairly safe in saying, actually, I know it's one of his musical heroes, from the band The Replacements, from Guns N' Roses, from Bash and Pop and Soul Asylum and Perfect, and with a brand new solo album that's fantastic called Cowboys in the Campfire, returning to the show, the great Tommy Stinson. This is a fantastic one. Oh, I'm excited for you to hear it. Uh, shout out to my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. And maybe by the time you're hearing this, a uh, new father, uh, Tristan Abraham. Congratulations, Tristan. I'm a, I'm a, a thrice uncle now. Uh, uh, but Tristan is a, a, a proud new father. So if you're sending emails to the show, you can do it at turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com, but it might be a little slower than normal in the return of those because he's going to have his hands full for the next, uh, next little while. Well, years, years and years, but certainly for the next few days, it's going to be a little swamped, I imagine. Uh, but Tristan will return your emails and you can send congratulation notes uh, over there too at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com or over at the Instagram page, Turned Out of Punk, or at the Facebook page, Turned Out of Punk on those platforms. There's also a TikTok page and a YouTube page for this podcast and an Instagram page, also all at Turned Out of Punk. I think I mentioned that Instagram page. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lefford Damien and. Uh, Oh, I play in a band. We're called uh, FuckedUp.cc is where you can find us. We're not actually called FuckedUp.cc, but that's where you can find us. And we just got back from a tour. We're doing some more stuff in September. Playing with the Gorilla Biscuits and Gold World. <laughs> Can't wait. Got got, uh, got nothing really planned in the summer, but we got some stuff planned in the fall. So check out FuckedUp.cc for more information on all of that. As I said, off the top, Tommy Stinson and John Worcester. Not much for me to get to to set this one up for you. I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to hear it. Oh, this is a good conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much to John and Tommy for doing this. And 
Oh, I'm excited for you to hear the results. You can find John Worcester, of course, on social media at John Worcester. You can also find him on the road with uh, Mountain Goats and Bob Mould, both playing shows this summer. And uh, yeah, you can find him anytime you see anything with John Worcester's name attached. Uh, check it out. But also the best show always is on Tuesdays night, Tuesday nights. And uh, as I said off the top, him and Tom Sharpling have probably the longest running successful comedy partnership that I can think of, you know, it's been going on for years and it's, and then they, they do it like every week, you know, they don't have an off season. There's like times, well, there's, there's, they miss weeks where John doesn't call. Anyway, look, check out the best show, check out the best show in general, immerse yourself in that universe, a huge inspiration on this podcast and everything there. And uh, once again, also check out Tommy Stinson's brand new solo record, Cowboys in the Campfire, available over at TommyStinson.com. I'm sure it'll also be available in shops, but you can check it out on streaming and all these places as well, because it is a fantastic record. And Tommy's Tommy is a, a, a person who has been raised in music. So this is someone who, you know, forget the 10,000 hour rule, like, God, I'm, I don't know how many hours are in uh, Tommy's age. Of the, I'm not, this isn't a math podcast. I'm sure there's a math podcast for that. This is a talking about punk podcast. Even if Tommy doesn't want to talk about punk, you'll hear it. All right. I'm not going to say it anymore. Here is Tommy Stinson and John Worcester on turned out of punk splits. Tommy, John, thank you both for coming back to the show. Mm. Yay. Yay. Good to be here. As I was just telling you, Tommy, off air, when uh, I found out that you were going to be coming back here, the first name that popped in my head was Mr. John Worcester, because he is my my hero in the world of music fandom. And John, I don't mean to speak for you on this one, but I think the replacements hold a special place for you. Very, very big spot in my heart. Um, Tommy, as one uh, client of the High Noon Management Stable, I, I I welcome another one. Um, what, for those of you who who don't know, uh, who haven't read Bob Mayer's glorious Trouble Boys book, uh, the replacements were managed by two guys, Russ and Gary, and they were uh, their management company was called High Noon. Uh, and at the same time, I was in a band that was managed by them also, and we couldn't get anything going, so we lived vicariously through you, you guys. Well, what band were you in for that period then? It was called The Right Profile. Wow. And we were the, we were the band that Dickinson did after Please to Meet Me. You're kidding me. No. and I, I, no, I, bring... I don't know anything about this story. And it's weird because we were pretty close with Gary and, and Russ. I mean, I yeah. talked to them all the time when, back in the day. We were so oh. low on, on the totem pole. and okay. I, but, but I bring this up because... We uh, were the next record or, or two records after Please to Meet Me. And Dickinson spoke so fondly of, of you, of the replacements, but uh, specifically you. And he just, he would light up when he talked about you. And and the song, there was a song that you played for him that, that, that was really cool and and he was he was imitating it and and he just loved you. So I just I just wanted to say that he was you were a, a big bright spot in his life and 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 oh. uh, I just wanted you to know that. Oh, very sweet. Thank you. I yes. was I was, you know, I'll tell you, I'll give you a little plus plus tax on that one. I got a I was um you know, 
um, lucky enough to actually speak to him um, before he passed. I, I, I'd, uh, I run into Luther Dickinson in Spain when I was uh, playing bass for Soul Asylum for a bit there, and Luther was in the Black Crows, and I, I, we sought each other out, and he, and he got, he called his dad back home because his dad was kind of on his, his was in, um, he was in hospice, I think, at that point, and I got to speak to him, and it was, it was just fantastic, and just sort of a, you know, uh, it was, it was just a really big moment for he, for myself, I'm sure for Jim too, because we had such, you know, I had great memories of him and great, uh, just a great, you know, all around with that whole family. So um, it was pretty special. Pretty cool. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we go back to Russ and Gary. <laughs> yes. Nice. Nice one. It's it's also through that management company that the um, Hootie and the Blowfish wind up doing the replacements cover. You were kind of explaining to to me, John, right? Have you heard that? By the way, Tommy, there's a replacements oh, no. cover on the Hootie and the Blowfish demo. No, what did what did they do? I'm trying to remember what song they do now. I got to look it up on my. No, uh... I I played in a band in in Raleigh in the late '80s, and Hootie and the Blowfish opened for us, Whoa. and and they did Little Mascara. Wow, that's kind that, of that night. And, yeah. Wow, bold and kind of out of the ordinary for someone to cover. I've heard yeah. people cover different things, but man, that's a that's a funny one. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was wild. That was great. Yeah, and there's like some sort of management connection too. I thought you told me one time, John, that you had with them, right? Maybe. Well, um, yeah, the guy that managed uh, the Accelerators, which is the band oh, I was playing in. I apologize. Uh, yes, yeah, so the Accelerators he, afterwards. He kind of discovered Hooting the Blowfish. Yeah, wow. so that that was the connection. That's the connection. I'm conflating the two stories, and um, mm -hmm. yeah. but yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting how the replacements and it comes up all the time on this podcast. But are because of the the profile you guys have, because of the band you were, you wind up being kind of the on ramp for a lot of people into rock and roll in general. But you know, ultimately punk rock for the specifics of this podcast. Right. Right. Well, funny enough, I mean, you know, for all that, I, you know, I never considered us punk rock, funny enough, and I never even considered myself punk rock for, for all that to do with your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we consider uh, the squeeze punk rock, and I know you're a squeeze yeah, fan. Yeah, I don't consider them punk rock either, but funny you're talking about them too, because I know that uh, they're they one of my favorites back in, from back in the day. Um, I was talking about them the other day, in fact, but uh, yeah, you know, um, appreciate all that um yeah hootie i just to go back to that i i always thought it was what a funny name but it's you know it's turned out he's such a good writer you know it, and uh he's, you know he's done so well for himself but uh i just never got around the name it's a tough name it's a tough tough uh you know tough one to get get around you know right it, it's like are you benefited by having a name that sticks out in people's minds like that. Like, I guess if you have the songs, you can have any name, right? Like a Rose Bunny, other I name. Think so, like the Beatles is kind of a crappy name. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, yeah. there was. I mean, there's. I you too. I mean, I mean, yeah. shit. You can go down the list. There's. You know, right. I've always, I've always told people. You know, you become the name. You don't. The name doesn't become you. And like, okay, so you're. You know, I mean, some bands are defined by their name, but it's only after the fact that they've actually become something of note you know that the name right. means anything at all you know um yeah 
like concrete, like concrete blonde. Who would ever thought of that? But you know, Michael Stipe threw that out there. You know, Janat, and there you go. Um, <laughs> I was running through all the blonde bands the other day with a friend. There's concrete blonde, four non blondes, platinum blonde, blondie, blonde redhead. Blonde is a pretty good choice to go with. You know, just throw any word in front of it. Maybe that is the key to success. Well, limited, <laughs> limited. <laughs> albeit you know especially after so many have already been used up um to a degree i suppose you know yeah yeah that kind of thing hey speaking of great band names can we can we talk a little bit about dog breath which was the the first the first uh collaboration between you and chris and your brother bob is that correct that is all correct. And I was yeah. cur- I was curious we talked about you not being uh, not considering yourself a, a punk at what point does punk come into Dog Breath's picture? Is that it, with Paul? You know, it might have. St- it would have been more with Chris. Chris was kind of turned onto the Sex Pistols from his brother's record collection, I think, um, right around that time. Um, and you know that the Dog Breath thing really was a really didn't last long at all i mean that was a, a short-lived moment before right. it was the impediments and then you know the replacements obviously but um yeah that was a, that was a, a very short spell um right. and we were still for the for all practical purposes we were still just a cover band at that point you know just doing shitty 70s covers that kind of thing yeah yeah it's interesting how you guys kind of like are, you know, at least how it's taken up now is like you guys were the outsider band. Like you're saying, you didn't identify as a punk, yet you ultimately wind up shaping this punk scene and, you know, much to the chagrin of a lot of the local punks at the time. You know, and it's, and it's almost like weird. It's, it's, it happens time and time again. Like you see it happening with like Oasis and Creation Records. You see it happening with, Things you can see it happening with Strokes in New York. You know, there's always these sort of like outlier bands that come from outside the quote unquote cool scene that wind up being the bands that that kind of shape things that that break out and break free from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, I'd I'd go with that. I'll go I'll buy a load of that nonsense. But um, <laughs> but you know, in terms in terms of that, I mean, it, I, I think if you really think about what punk really you know what it would really stand for quote unquote and in the back in the back in the days you know as we're talking about it really was more about nonconformity and um you know kind of playing by your own book of rules really um really you know the 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 artistic the art part and the fashion of it i think we're kind of a a by just a sort of a you know and uh, you know, just a, a, an added part to that. I don't really think has anything to do with really what if you like punk music. I mean, shit, Johnny Cash was punk for that matter. I mean, he kind of did it in his own way and, and by his own, you know, by his you know own rules in a way. And so, I mean, we were that completely because we, you know, we definitely weren't able to conform uh, to anything uh, outside of our own mischief and whatnot. So, yeah. I guess, I guess that, and, and I think in terms of what really punk really is, it's kind of that, you know, that, that would make that, you know, punk, I suppose, if you were to give it a term, I don't like to give things like that a, too much gas. Right. And <laughs> in, in the short, you know, explanation of it, that's my two cents on it. 
what what was your brother Bob's relationship to punk? Like we knew we know that he was a big Steve Howe fan, loved that kind of guitar playing. What was his relationship or connection to punk? Was he into it? Yeah, you know, I mean, he liked the damned, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that kind of stuff. But um, you know, not. I mean, he wasn't really you know, into all that stuff. I mean, my, he was a guitar player and he, you know, he liked, you know, what he liked guitar player wise. Um, hence, you know, Steve Howe or, you know, right. Peter Frampton or um, you know, Johnny Winter, especially. I mean, those were just because he was, you know, that's where he got, that's where he, that's where his enthusiasm came from was for the guitar. So, right. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's where that would come from, but he was never really, he never really was in, in any of the same music I was really into in that regard. Okay. Like we, you know, he, I kind of moved on to, you know, things like that, like the, you know, the clash or squeeze, that kind of stuff. Bob stayed pretty much where he was Beatles right. and Johnny winter and stuff like that, that had um, his, his uh, more, his stuff on it. Right. It's interesting when you kind of think of like punk as being this thing where it's like the, the balance between, you know, kind of like authentic, street rock and roll and that sort of pretense you know art pretense stuff that you were bringing up before it's almost like you know um this is sort of constant struggle and when you find that perfect blend between the two the mix of the two where you kind of like have that real rock and roll that connects with people but then it also has that kind of highfalutinous to it too like that you know i think it's that ultimate pursuit of that beef art and stuff like that like you're saying it does predate punk rock but it's interesting how it kind of coalesces in punk rock. And maybe it's because you know, means of production were in the hands of, of music people producing it. Like you had fanzines, you had community radio, I know was a big thing. You, know, you had all these sorts of accessibility points for new bands. Right. Well, you know, again, again, when you, um, when you try and pigeonhole something in a way, or, you know, give it a, give it a name. I think, I think, again, it's like, I think, the intrinsic, you know, ethos of what punk rock really kind of means, I, I think, gets bypassed a lot. I think it's, it's like becomes more of a you know, talking point about a certain attitude, and I think a lot of that stuff is pretty trite. Um, a lot of bands, I think, that would consider themselves punk rockers or whatever, I think there's a lot of the attitude <laughs> problems with that. Really, that. Um, uh, not really heartfelt or really based on anything of of import or even you know of anything substantial. I think I think when you really look at it, um, like I said, Johnny Cash or you know people that really and Captain Beefheart, like you just brought up, those those are you know people that they were doing it their way. That's the music they believed in uh, and meant it. And I think when you do that, I mean the replacement we meant what we did, and we you know. I still do. I mean, I still, you know, when I, when I make record now and I, you know, I go out, I'm still, I still do things on my own the way I, I see them fit. Cause again, I didn't, I didn't learn much from <laughs> the replacements days or any of that stuff to apply to my, uh, my, my latter years, shall I say, um, right. about <laughs> making records and that, except that the one thing that has always served me well, is to stick to my guns and to stick to what I believe in. I can't be, you know, when I make, when I write, write songs or um, make a record, 
I ain't sitting there listening to anybody else's stuff going, I want to sound like that. I want to be like this. I want to be like that, that cool dude there, you know, with the cool hair, that haircut or whatever. Um, you know, there was a little more of that involved when I was a kid, but you know, I, the only thing I've taken away from all that stuff and being sort of in what people would call the punk scene or whatever the fuck, um, really comes down to just me. Oh, can I swear on this? Yeah, of course. Uh, what it really comes down to me is just, is, is just sticking to my, what I know and what I believe in and, and how I see fit and whether it's, whether I'm writing a country song or something that's, you know, sounds country like to somebody, it still comes in the same place for me for like, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm not looking at someone else to emulate with it, really. You know, I kind of just, I've taken in all the, I take in all the, you know, information from the outside world and I process it my own way, but I certainly don't do it to try and sound like anyone else. I stopped trying to be a pop star many, many right. decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> I think hey, I, well, left, I left that with the replacements. Inside. Right. <laughs> Well, speaking of country, you 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 have a record coming out on June second, Cowboys in the Campfire. Uh, That's correct. Wrong, wronger, and I was listening to it, and it's what's amazing about it is it's really timeless sounding. Like it could, it's almost like rough and rowdy ways. This this most recent Dylan record, where it's like it's just sort of in the ether the way it's produced. It's amazing, and. And I was thinking, wow, this is really country. And then I realized, you know, the first replacement single was a country song. Yeah. So it's it's not that that far fetched. And I, I was curious, what your who are your country people? You know, if you were to ask Peter or Paul about that, you would get you'd get a great story about it because I I I had I had um. Hank Williams shoved down my throat to right. an extent when I was when we were getting our start back in the day to the point where I can barely hear a song go by that just doesn't make me go oh fuck. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm finally coming around to Hank Williams again after getting it just shoved down my throat. You know, many drunken drives uh, back in the day, but I don't really have I, I don't really have a country influence per se. I don't have a jazz influence per se. I like so many different things i'm pretty um i'm pretty open to all kinds of music and always have been to a to a, a, a big part and so as you say that I, I i go back to exactly what i was saying before it's like i we the replacements and where i where i grew up where i've got my musical tastes from are really based in um liking things i hear not so much to emulate but influence they've influenced me um a lot of stuff you know country or otherwise rock um bob dylan i mean other things they seep into my brain and what comes out of me when i write kind of just comes out it doesn't i don't think i'm gonna i mean if i grab a guitar and i start coming up with a you know guitar riff through a you know a loud amp and it's got some crunch to it that might just turn into a you know punk rock kind of sounding mm -hmm. or rock and roll kind of song or whatever um but a lot of times i end up <laughs> i'll end up writing something like that that'll end up turning into an acoustic song or vice versa it's just kind of where it works out that way but um in terms of my country influences i i don't really um i mean i listen to a lot of different stuff but you know um johnny would be one um you know, Colin Campbell's been seems to be on my playlist a lot lately. I don't know. I, as as I listen to different 
you know, playlists and stuff like that. It comes up a lot and you just go like, man, it was actually a pop song, right? It wasn't really country. And that's because kind of some of the weird, some of his, his, some of his songwriting things I've been listening to um, more in terms of just like the songwriting, appreciate, you know, appreciating the songwriting aspect of it. Cause it's, you know, he, he did so many different textures in his music, you know, um, for a country star or, or pop star, however you want to classify him anyway. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question, I don't really have a, any country right. <laughs> background to me. I just I write it as it comes out of me, man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, you mentioned Johnny Cash. If we could talk about another Johnny who I, I, I think might be the, as far as what I can tell, the biggest influence on early replacements, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. Is that fair enough? Sure enough. Go with it. Go with it. What's... Um, I know he opened for you guys at the Beacon. What was that like? And I know you played that great LAMF show in 2016 with Walter Lure. Yeah. And and was it Glenn Matlock and some other people? How no, what was that? What was, was that like? It was Walter Lure. It was me. It was Clem. Uh, uh, Jesse Malm was in and out of that. Um, yeah. It was funny. I mean, Walter was a, was. <laughs> was a sweetheart. Um, Clem Clem was the professional in the group, right? Um, but you know, to go, to go back to, I mean, you go back to, I mean, Johnny Thunders. I mean, you can't put your arms around a memory. I mean, you know, um, if you were to if you were to you know kind of look at what you know what that influence is all about, coming from New York Dolls on to Johnny Thunders and all that stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of that in our musical appreciation you know playbook if you will um uh but you can still hear the same kinds of things in in johnny um and you you'll and i guess you could go back and say that probably about the, the replacements as well you can hear all the different influences we had in 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 everything we did whether it was a pop song more derivative of pop you know inspiration or country whatever you can hear paul's influences all through all that stuff i've kind of grew up with that sort of in mind as well with all my own stuff so i mean like my record right now um wronger with cowboys and campfire there's everything in there i mean from from rock to country to uh i mean it's it's the only the only reason why it is um, a, a, you could label it anything close to whatever they call it, America. I hate the term Americana, but it's because we, as a as a songwriting team, Chip and I are, um, we kind of put ourselves out as a duo. Like we've we traveled around as a duo doing our thing, um, you know, playing shows that way, just the two of us. But when it came to making the record, we took all those influences and, and kind of had to, you know, I, I, I come from, you know, as you know, you know, the mats and all these things I've done, guns and all this stuff. I still incorporate all those influences into my stuff because I hear I, when I listen to a, a song or a demo or I'm, you know, reworking on one of my songs or whatever, I hear the things that it, the song wants. Like the song, the songs tell me what they want, whether it wants bass or a little bit of a drum without a whole drum beat or whatever. And then it kind of goes from there, influence and all. Um, um, and that's I, the replacements made records like that. That's how I've, that's how I kind of I stick to that because I you know what's worked best for me. It's it's the you know only way I really know how to navigate writing songs and, and making records. You know the music will yeah. tell you what it wants, kind of thing. 
Yeah. Were you yeah. at that infamous gang war show? That uh... No, I was not. I was not at that, but I heard a lot about it. Yeah, that's what a storied band. Like, what a, a lot of potential of what yeah. could have been with that thing. Well, you, you know what's funny about that is, um, uh, oh, um, what's, um, uh, but I'm, 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 Wayne I'm, Kramer. I'm, I'm, yes, Wayne. Um, oh, I've Wayne known, was I've on known, that show. Yeah, he was, he was him and Johnny. I mean, back when he was still using yeah. Wayne, Wayne's a sweetheart of a, guy, of a guy. I love that guy. I've known him for years. And, you know, I, I met him in L.A. Shit, he'd already been sober for a while, then his jail time and all that stuff, and couldn't have been more of a gentleman. And I've, I've, I've hung out with him and done interviews with him and different things over the years. But uh, um, I almost can't imagine <laughs> the gang war show that I heard about with him in it. He, he just is so you see right. Wayne and you go that just doesn't compute you know yeah um, from what that was about but again you know he's been sober for forever now so um, you know we do different goofy shit when we're drunks and fucked up you know right but uh but yeah what was the I, question well here all right speaking of you know doing or you know like things we did when we were younger i have a vivid memory of being in the high noon office probably somewhere in 87 and there was the birth announcement for your daughter who's i think named ruby is that correct yeah 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 and i, and I remember it was handwritten it was a very traditional birth announcement and i remember holding it and you and i are just like a couple months apart so i would yeah, have been 19, yeah. 19 or 20 and i remember just thinking what does that look like? Like, what is that life like? So now I can ask you, what was it like being like 20 years old, a brand new dad and in the replacements? It was short lived. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> towards the end, towards the end of, of our run, we were, we were kind of coming to terms with the fact that we're not just fucking kids anymore. Right. And, um, and that, you know, we, we got married, you know, Paul got married and, and we weren't like slowing down any one particular way. We were just kind of trying to evolve. I think, I think, I think we naturally tried to evolve and were stunted by the fact that we really had no significant, um, uh, adults in our lives really that could you know lead the way for that i think right. uh, we all come from shitty backgrounds shitty childhoods and stuff and so you know i think i think you know as you get more mature you know your inclination even for us fuck ups um was to try and you know serious up a little bit and i you know and the music was getting more serious paul was getting more serious we were, we were all getting more serious about what we were doing on the one hand um in, in terms of we mean it you know we we meant you know what we were doing we loved what we were doing and it was important to us it wasn't just uh fun and games even though we were total we were totally you know goofballs in a, in a whole other way especially when you add drink and drug to it but um you know it was it was a funny time and you know obviously it didn't we didn't fare well with it either one of us but uh um you know we tried you know, we tried and I'm, I'm fortunate enough that my kids, both my kids are doing great. And wow, it's great. Yeah. And, um, 
and they forgive me. <laughs> right. Yes. It's important. So, yeah, you know. It, it feels as a band at a certain point you're trying to outrun your your legacy or your, what you've done before. Um, you know, and I think with the replacements, it definitely from the outside seems like it took a long time for people to catch up to those later records. Like people are so fiercely loyal to certain periods of the band and certainly critical acceptance of these the whole catalog is is fairly canon at this point. But did you feel that at the time, like people were clinging to a certain era of the band as you're hitting this point where you want to, you know, like you're saying, you're taking it seriously now. It's a different kind of feeling to the band, what you're doing musically by 87. You know, I mean, here I can give you, I'll give you my straight, you know, fucking Tommy Stinson 101 course on this right now. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a good point. You know, um, historically, popular music, if you're lucky enough to have success, a lot, um, success is often predicated on people liking a certain period and a certain thing you do, and they don't want you to do something different. They want, they want you to keep making it like this because this is really what's really gotten them emotionally involved with you. They've got a connection with you musically. What I learned early on being in the replacements, and this is the good and the bad and the other of it, is that we, as a, as a group, um, were evolving mentally um, as well music as well as musically. We weren't. We didn't want to be a punk band. We didn't want to be a jazz band, for that matter. We didn't really want to be any sort of pigeonhole kind of thing because we liked all kinds of different kind of music. And cut to, you know, cut to the latter years, and it's no different for me now than it was then in this way. And and every artist you will ever talk to. Um, of any success will probably have a similar tale is that the, the, if you're lucky enough to be successful enough, that's great. But you also comes with the baggage of they want to keep you in a fucking box and your fans, they don't know it, that that's what they're trying to do, but they in effect are trying to stunt your growth in a way right. by keeping you in that box. And we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it in every way. And hence, um, Hence, we, we, we sabotaged ourselves in that way. And we saw a lot of our peers, REM being one of them, not that they, not that they conformed to the, you know, the, the suits necessarily, but we saw them gladly shaking hands and playing the game and, 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 and doing that in a particular way that we just, we just were, we were I think we were um, ill-prepared mentally to do. But also, I don't think we... we we didn't want to, we didn't want that. We didn't want to be pigeonholed. We didn't want to be stuck in a, in, in, in the box. And so cut to now, I'm still making records. I made a new record. I ain't stuck in the box, but still, as we're sitting here now, I, I, it always goes back to the box. Oh, you know, yeah. the, the, you know, yeah. it always goes back to that here are the replacements or that, and you know, I'm people throw the guns and roses stuff in there too. But, and I, and I got no problem talking about it, but it is still a thing and I'm still not conforming. I still make records the fucking way I want to make them because that's where replacements made them. That's where I grew up making them. That's the way I'm always going to fucking make them. And whether, whether, whether I like some new stuff that is permeating into my musical, you know, brain um and i steal a little bit here or there or get influenced by something here or there that's another thing but for the most part it's the same fucking drill and people come to my shows and they still 
kind of have a hope that I'm going to do a replacement song. And I do Cowboys in the Campfire with Chip. And now we added this guy Chops to play upright bass. Um, and we're having a fucking hoot doing what we do and what we like doing. It's nothing like fucking Sorry Ma. It's nothing. Although there are a lot of things about it that are like Sorry Ma because, you know, that shit's going to go with me to my grave. Right. And so, and so all those influences from early replacements, even through Guns N' Roses, are even on my new record. They're yeah. in the Cowboy and the Campfire record. It's very subtle and it's always going to be that way, but you can sit there and you can go, that sounds kind of like that a little bit. That sounds like that's got, and it's because it does. Mm -hmm. It's going to always, the replacements, Guns N' Roses even, even Solo Silent Degree, that's always going to follow me and you're going to hear bits of that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be being honest with you. I wouldn't be an honest musician doing what I honestly believe in if I didn't have those influences in there. So, I mean, you know, in pop music, that's the good, mad, the ugly of it. Um, they want to keep you in that box. They want you to, you know, stay the same so they can always have that same feeling from you. But we, we can't, as artists, do that. We have to always be challenging ourselves if we're, if we're smart. If we're smart and we want to... And, and if we have any sense in our head about growing as artists, you got you evolve, you evolve and you change, but the, you know, the initial thing is always going to be there, you know? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Yeah, as a music, as a as like an artist, you know, songwriter type thing, nostalgia is your worst enemy. Because oh, totally. You're always competing with people's nostalgia. People had fucking nostalgia for fucking sorry, Ma, when we were already moving on to please to meet me. And right. it's like, fuck, yeah. man, that's just a couple of years ago, dude. I mean, <laughs> give us a break. You know? Yeah. You know, we would already gotten we'd already done. I'm in trouble 50 million times in every bar across the fucking country. We were ready to play something else, mm -hmm. you know, and that happens with every artist out there. It's like, yeah, OK, I can play. Can't hardly want again, maybe once. Maybe twice, but you know, we've already done it a million times, you know, and it's like it's time to move on, you know, and it becomes that way. But you know, the thing about pop music, I mean, shit, by the time your record even gets out, you're already on to something. You're tired of it. Anyway, yeah. You've yeah. already done it a million too many times. What, you know, and, and I'll tell you this, because you didn't ask, is that um, I don't make, I, I've gone back to making records like we did in the early 80s. Um, a lot of the stuff I've, we did with the Cowboys and Campfire record is very much like that. We go in, cut basic tracks while, while the feeling and while the, the inspiration of the songs is still there. Um, and, and few over, very few overdubs on top of that. And the song is done. Like, you know, we started the record, you know, with the first tracks we recorded, we recorded down in Austin, Texas. And we had you know, John Doe had just moved down there. So I was like, mm -hmm. hey, John, you want to come over and play bass? And so he did. And he played on the first five songs on the record. And that sort of set up the vibe of that record, which, which um, like I said, goes back to the early replacements days of how I made, we made records back then. And that's because I really, you know, I've made them every way, 
the Guns N' Roses record was the longest record ever made. You know, it right. took for fucking, I mean, 20,000 years to fucking finish, whatever. But, but um, it, it, you know, I, I've gone back to where the inspiration is raw and fresh and like capture that moment and then move on. Because you can't, right. once you, you can't really get better, make a song or a track better than the raw, fresh, and you're excited about it. You get right. that once. You can listen back to it and not remember that moment per se, but that's what you captured. And you can always try and beat that. And you never do. And right. I found that I found that with every band I've ever been with is like the moment that it feels like the best bad notes and all that's the moment you keep. And that's the one you put on the record. Yeah. <laughs> it always happens. Well, on this, on this track, I, I was, I wanted to ask about, um, Friday Night is Killing Me, the, the, the first Bastion Pop record, which is one of my favorite records. And I think it's one of the best sounding records of all time. Don Smith produced oh, it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious. It, it sounds like it's not polished, but it sounds like you guys really worked on the basics. So I was I was curious how much fly by the seat of the pants ethos was in that record or, or, or was it pretty? It pretty was it was. It was all like that. I mean, it was. I, I was coming off of, you know, in those at that time I was coming off the replacement stuff where we where I was I was annoyed at I was still kind of um, annoyed and it was still fresh in my memory how uh, how much we overdid uh, Don't Tell a Soul. We we spent way too much time fucking around and gave we were, we were given way too much rope on that. And I think it turned and you can hear it. You can hear it in the original record of that now the read the reissue of that which we clean which which matt wallace um went back to the original sounds that we'd gotten is a night and day record um and and that's for for good reason um and so when i made that back that first bash and pop record um i really wanted to get back to doing a live like a live sounding kind of thing capture you know the best i could with you know that kind of thing so you know we went to a studio in um uh santa barbara california um god was what was his name uh um it was a dude's specific dude studio i'm blanking on the name right now um but it, we went in there we had like i don't know two weeks two weeks to get it done um which at that time was nothing because people would spend fucking half a year making a record back then which was long you know but uh which was way too long um but yeah we you know tried to get it done and capture you know the spirit the spirit is more is spirit is equally as important as the song is because you can sit there and beat the shit out of a song till you're blue in the face uh if you don't get it spirit and and what the song wants to be out you're never going to get it you know? right um did my best on that no it's a great record i i think i think it's fabulous um, thank you I, I, you know, still, still doing, I mean, that's a, just to get to it. I mean, that's still the way I make records. I don't, yeah. I don't sit and I don't, they take longer to finish when you got other projects in the, in the, in the, in the throes of life and all that stuff. But that's, it's how I produce records for people. That's the way I produce my own. It's just got to capture the moments. And, you know, if the songs are there, you know, before you start. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So who were who were the other players on on Wronger? There's a lot of horns, there's strings, there's there's pedal steel. Who who's doing all that stuff? 
So yeah, so a lot of that, a lot of the the initial stuff is just Chip and I. So we got I got I, the guitars and the laps, the, the electric guitars and lap steels, all Chip for the most part. Um, and and I, I do some of the electric guitar stuff on it as well. Um, the horns are um, the Mighty Mighty Boston's horn section. Those oh, guys, wow. um, those I you know we had the we had that song. Um, here we go again, and it just seemed like the guitar riff that we had going on. It's like, I just, I think that needs to be horns. I don't know why I thought it. Um, it just seemed like the song really, I mean, it's a ukulele starts a song. <laughs> I'm playing the yeah. ukulele in this little thing. Um, it just seemed to me like, well, it needs, it needs the, it needs the depth of like a horn section. So I called up, you know, uh, Joe Kidd, the drummer for the Boston's who played in the Boston oh, yeah. pop. That's right. Record. That's right. Yeah. And um and I said, well, how do I get a hold of those guys? And um it was before it was before <laughs> before they split up. <laughs> they were still the mighty mighty Boston's when I got them on that song. And they 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 did it, you know, it was during the pandemic. They were all um in their homes studios doing that uh, yeah. to finish that up. Um and like I said, John Doe playing bait upright. John Doe playing upright bass, by the way, on um, the first five songs, which would have been um, uh, um, 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 Fall Apart Together, mm -hmm. um, Hey Man, uh, Karma's Bitch, Mr. Wrong, um, and one other one I'm blanking on right now, but he played, so we started with those songs with John Doe playing upright bass, and, and we had such a ball with him, and he, he hadn't, he comes walking in with this ant peg upright bass. He, he never, he, you know, he, he messed around with it at home. He said, but he hadn't recorded with it. And it's like, it was really fun. I mean, he was, he was having a blast playing that thing, and we captured the moment of the three of us, right, having fun with it. Nothing perfect about those tracks, except that it was a perfect atmosphere and a perfect attitude, and for all of that. So that starting the record off with that kind of opened the door to how to navigate the rest of it. The strings on Hey Man, again, it was like, um, I had done a, I'd, I'd met the string section that played on that at a Jesse Mallon session. Um, I met, met them, he was doing a, a video and a, like a documentary in, in the city, in New York City. And I met this, this uh, woman, Claudia, and he, he had strings on his song. I was going, wow, that's pretty cool. And I didn't even really, Put the two things together until i got home and and chip and i were finishing up the record i'm like man i wonder i wonder how strings would sound on this because i'd i never sat and listened to one of my songs and thought i think strings would be good on this i had never had that thought until this right. this one song and so hey man i'm going i think i think that might be kind of cool and so i cut, cut to got a hold of claudia and and had and um um Actually, at the time, too, a girlfriend was playing, had, had picked up, she'd been playing violin for a while. And I, I think it might even started with her, an idea having her come up with a thing that made it kind of turn into a bigger idea. It, it just it started off as maybe a violin idea. And then, you know, it was like, maybe this should have a whole string section. So it kind of evolved into this thing. But um, cut to going from that to, you know, having Claudia and her and her friend and her trio of people come up with a string arrangement for that song. It, they did it. And it was, the, I, as soon as I asked for it, they were done. Wow. And, and then they sent me the tracks. And I was like, 
takes it to a whole different level. That's a whole different thing. Wow, I can't believe that. And Chip and I sat there and listened to it. You know, when we when we listened to the whole record at the end, sat there and looked at each other and we're like, wow, that's us. You know, we couldn't kind of outside ourselves kind of go, wow, not bad, you know? Yeah, those are the best moments recording, I find, where you where you do actually say, oh my God, is that me? Like, I didn't think... I didn't think I could I could play that, and it's 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 uh it takes it to a whole new level, and yeah. and it really makes you sort of explore other options that maybe you thought were not available to you before. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I because I'm because I'm able to even more so now um, than before. I mean, to conjure something like that up, you know, back in the day one would sound like an expense and a thing that was inconceivable right. we don't know any don't know anyone that does string arrangements all these kinds of things would just shut it down before you even had a chance to even hear what it was going to be like um that that's kind of how that would work in the past but now with um i guess the the plus and minus of all the um technology now makes something like that more attainable and so you can really kind of do you know, so many, you have so many more uh, outlets and avenues to be creative and, and add different musicality now than I think we had access to even back then oh, definitely. Um, definitely. in an easier way, in an affordable way. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of a cool moment. But um, so I got that. Um, those are really the, the, you know, my buddy Tony, um, playing piano on that um i've always liked it i've never really had a a lot of room in, in my my songs for piano but there's a you know a few things on here that, that seemed like they had room for it as well as organ and um we kept the drums to a minimum because and who's playing the drums on, uh, on the whole record um that's otto hauser he's a guy from uh up here in the hudson valley um okay i met him when i moved up here and uh great drummer he's played on some other sessions i've done and we and some other records i've produced he's played on and um really just a solid guy and what, what's great about him is he grew up playing he grew up learning how to play like playing drums in a, in a way where oh so that's how keith moon did this and that's and he learned that and knew right. so if you see he's one of those people you can go i'm thinking more of like a ringo vibe or you can go Maybe more, you know, uh, maybe more Keith Moon on this one. And he'll go, oh, okay, and he'll just play it. And you'll go, oh, right. shit, there it is. You know, That's there's it. the bit. Um, and there's actually one, <laughs> the one track on the record, um, Souls. I mean, Souls, I, I told him, it's like, yeah, it's kind of jazzy in the verses, but then it kind of does kind of a kind of a Keith Moon thing in the chorus. I don't know, it doesn't make any sense, but, you know, if you can kind of cut that. And so he kind of, he kind of processed that and was, totally bust out we won't get fooled again kind of thing originally it was like okay pull that back a little bit you know yeah <laughs> um it was that kind of thing it was like you can go all the way or you can pull it back and that's where we right. came up with the middle ground on that one you know wow yeah like you said hey, earlier oh sorry go on <laughs> no, i was go, gonna, say, I was gonna go. say speak speaking of drummers can you talk a little bit ab about chris mars um i think these these kind of stripped down versions of don't tell us all and some other things really reveal how good he was. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, about Chris and his drumming and his artwork or like how, 
weird he was in a good way or whatever. Yeah. How good he was in a weird way. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> that, that's about how that is. <laughs> no, I mean, he was, he's a solid drummer was, or he was a solid drummer back then, but very unconventional. Like, yeah. um, in, and in, and I'll go back to this too, similar in a way as a Keith Moon in the, in the style, the way he played his kick and snare and groove. I mean, for a lot of the who stuff, if you, if you look at, you know, video or hear it, very unconventional i mean drumming almost almost like jazz in a way yeah. compared to the beatles which is there, there's beat you know a particular beat right. i mean ringo had his own thing too but but um pop drumming uh, and is different i think intrinsically it's a it's a groove and a beat um chris Moore had a particular interesting way of playing the kick and the snare especially in the early early records um um very uh very unconventional but the way I played bass and, and that worked. Um, yeah. I don't, and, and, you know, as we evolved, it changed and got better and stuff like that. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, he's a very um, adaptable drummer in a way, I think. And, and not and in an unconventional way, I think, you know, he fit the, fit the role really oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. And Steve was great. Steve Foley. I thought, I thought he was really good. And on the bash and pop record, He's really great. Um, See, the dif the difference between them is 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 night and day. Steve was uh, more of a, a groove drummer. She, Steve, um, you know, had a had a, a a good pocket, a really good pocket. Chris Mars yeah. was more of a utilitarian, more of a utilitarian utilitarian drummer, and just kind of we could do a bunch of different things, you know, but not the greatest groove per se, you know. I mean, I don't I don't want I'm not belittling him, just just different styles. It's just Chris is more of a, a basher, that kind of thing. Steve was more of a groove, you know, kind of oriented drummer, I should say. Now, who are your bass influences? Is there some Paul Simonon in there? Sure. Lots, lots and lots. Um, lots of that. Um, Jim Lee of Slade was another yeah. big influence yeah. for me. Once I, wow. once I got into Slade records, it was like, wow, that's fucking the bass playing on that. And Paul McCartney as well. I mean, those two kind of hand in hand in a way, but, um, you know, playing around the, playing around the root kind of comes from, you know, the root notes comes around from more of the Paul McCartney, Jim Lee kind of stuff coming up with more of the bass melodies. I think is probably where that kind of came in my brain, but yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, shit, Chris Squire's in there, you know? Yeah. Um, um, early influence and all that stuff. You know? What about John Doe? Was he an influence at a certain point? John Doe, as a songwriter and as a member of, x and all that more so than just simply being a bass player like like he he was i mean i always looked up to him as like man that's how i want to be <laughs> like, i want to be like that guy yeah. you know as a kid i was like he was like my favorite really because i one i knew him i knew how cool he was but he always looked so fucking cool playing and i just i always watched him just going Man, he's got it going. I mean, that's that's the vibe right there, you know. Right. <laughs> well, so that you're bringing up kind of vibe over virtuosity, you know, and it's yeah. like that balance between the two. Oh um, yeah, it's it, subtle. It's, it's a subtle thing. Yeah. I, you know, John touched on it way back, but you know, like you're saying, like how you wanted to be John Doe. I think for so many fans of this music, they kind of grew up vicariously through you. 
you know, and through various bands and various projects that you've been in and looking at you. And like, it's very unique. Like, I think the only person in, in this music that's kind of done that is Steve McDonald, you know, and, and Steve McDonald's kind of journey in Red Cross and like, yeah. you know, into the Melvins now where he's kind of the, the, the product of this music in a way. Yeah. No, I, I've always loved the McDonald brothers, man. They're fucking talented people. Really great. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a funny, he's, a, he's an influence as well. Um, as a fan of their, their stuff. Um, you know, you, you and you kind of hit, it. I mean, there, there is, I mean, as a, as a young music lover guy, I mean, I always thought the same about Paul Simone. I thought he was a very, uh, a great bass player, but I also looked really great playing it. Well, that, that was my next cool question. Factor, you know, he had was the cool it, factor. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed yeah. like you, who, who were your fashion guys? You were the first like um, young American dude I ever saw who wore creepers. Where'd you get them and who inspired you to wear them? Um, probably, you know, early punk records inspired, but um, the first pair I got, um, I think I bought, man, I must've been 13 or 14 when I bought my first pair of creepers. Wow. And um, I bought them in a place called March 4th, which was a, um, a little uh, kind of punk rock clothing store in Minneapolis at that time. Funny that there was one in Minneapolis at that time, which was great, but um, they were, they were two sizes too big for me, but that's the only size they had left when I had the dough. I'd, you know, um, because we were already playing clubs and stuff like that. So I went with my gig money and bought them. And <laughs> I remember, I think they were like 40 bucks or something, which was a lot back then for what they were, but they're from England. And so, right. um, and they were blue. They were blue suede creepers. Um, fuck, I wore the hell out of them. All that extra soul, you know? <laughs> the, th the world's thickest socks. Totally, totally. Yeah. Oh. Go on, John. Let's nerd out super quick. What is this? Tommy, look at this. The Jacks. No idea. You play like on it. You play on like it. And I don't this know. Is how it's it. This is the original form it came in. Oh, there it is. Tulsa this is Jacks. The, the Tulsa Jacks Walter's Vacation demo. What is it? I brought it up to you briefly last time, Tommy. You didn't have any recollection of it, but it's, it's this recording session featuring Chris Osgood, uh, yourself, and Bob Mould playing with this band, the the Jacks from Tulsa, who had, I guess the member, uh, the main guy in the band had moved up to Minneapolis for the summer. And Walter, I think is his name actually, hence Walter's vacation, and did this session, which to me is like the Rosetta Stone of Minneapolis indie <laughs> music. Like to see the three kind of the heads of the Hydra together in one place is is unbelievable to me and yeah like as john says it's now been reissued and it's fantastic i don't think bob wow. remembers it either bob said he remembers it a he little did? bit oh. yeah but he he's not as but he's like it seems to me like i don't know for, for me finding out about this thing i'm like oh my gosh this should be this should be in the rock and roll hall of fame itself this tape <laughs> he told me about it yeah um, so I, w let me ask you, are there credits on the disc? Does it say I've recorded at Blackberry it. Way? Is it I'll open recorded it right now. At, yeah, is it recorded at Blackberry Way? I'm I'm pulling out the liner notes here. It features also uh, Mitch Griffin, who played in, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of, I'm blanking on it, like a very kind of Pogues-inspired Celtic kind of punk band from back then. He's on drums, and hmm. uh, it was recorded at... 
Blackberry Way. Yes. Mitch at Blackberry Way, mixed by Mitch and Steve. And uh, mm-hmm. it says, engineered by Steve. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to. Felstead. Yeah, Felstead. Sorry. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, you guys play together on the tracks. Uh, uh, there's one that, oh, it lets lie. It's you and Bob together. Um, no, pretty poisonous. Sorry. is you and Bob together. You're so wrong is you and Bob together and all around you is you and Bob together. And then there's also this boy and let's lie, which feature Bob and Chris Osgood together. Oh, I I don't remember. I, I, uh... This is like the second or third time this has come up in the last few weeks. I'm, and I kind of remember the, the the session a little bit, but ultimately don't remember anything about it. I, I'm starting to remember like the studio and hanging out with those with Bob and, and Chris kind of doing this thing vaguely. But I mean, this is I mean, what year is it from? Like 81? I think it's 81, 80, 81 must be 81. Yeah. So, you know, I'm 15. Yeah. Well, it's, it's unbelievable because, you know, you touched on it earlier, like Guns N' Roses, you know, the record you're on with Guns N' Roses is one of the most talked about records of all time, you know, in terms yes. of its size and its scope. Like you're saying, it's one of the longest records ever recorded. So I imagine Walter's vacation is but a blip on the uh, yeah. musical trajectory. Yeah, uh, it came and went within a couple hours of learning, playing, recording, and being done. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember anything about it. You'll have to listen to it and let me know what you think. Oh, it's awesome. I, I assure oh, you, cool. it is fantastic. And I will make yeah. sure that uh, the label sends you a copy because they would yes, love to get you some do. copies. I'll, they I'll would. Uh, get my address from Joe Murray. I'd love to see that. I'll be I will copy. make sure. Be funny. I, will, I will send Kastner uh, promptly an email. Yeah, sure I, I don't need the cassette. No, you, you need the CD, Apple. CD would be just, app would be, or even a streaming version would be fine. Yeah, I think it is on streaming, actually, to be honest with you. But uh, they would love to give you some copies of, I'm Very sure. Cool. Um, but I wanted to actually ask you, what was it like hearing Appetite for Destruction for the first time? Once again, going back to 1987, um, a record that, you know, like, I think people talk about Nevermind. But prior to Nevermind, like, Appetite for Destruction seems like it changed the music industry. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't on my radar when it came out um that whole that whole thing i mean how i even ended up in that was really um uh it was a lark in a way i mean the audition was a lark i just it was josh freeze he was like why don't you come test it test it out i mean we don't got a bass player right now why don't you go out and play and do it anyway just for fun and he and i had were hanging out this rehearsal studio in la when he brought it up i was like you know and he was a buddy of mine so you know, cut to like I learned a couple of songs. I like, all right, I'll check it out. And I went out and did it for fun and got the I mean, pretty much just got the gig um on the spot. But it was, you know, I didn't I didn't mean to do that. And what really kind of kept me in it was um, you know, I sat down with Axel about it and talked about it. And, you know, it's like it occurred to me that uh, you know, the other guys had quit for whatever their reasons are, and he was like, you know what? I've you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not stopping. I'm, I'm got, we're guns and roses and I'm going to continue on whether you guys are here or not. And, and he asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, well, he's going to continue on as guns and roses, just being the only one in guns and roses besides dizzy. I thought, well, that's pretty fucking punk rock in itself. <laughs> Speaking of which um, I thought that's balls, man. All right. I'm in, you know, that's really all it took for me to go. 
that sounds like a fucking adventure and pretty fucking incredible move. And I, I'm with you, you know, um, and, you know, great experience from that. I mean, I, I um, wouldn't trade in for the world, the whole, the, the whole making of that record. I mean, it took longer than it probably should have, but, um, but the process that of putting, you know, a bunch of guys from various backgrounds of musical influences and all that, having them make a record daunting as it was, was I'll re always remember it fondly. It was a really, uh, really great learning experience for me. What was it like going from that back to the replacements? That must have been kind of a weird uh, shift, or was it? Uh, not really. I mean, um, you got to kind of look at it. I, the way I looked at it, and the way I kind of look at everything is like, I, I haven't really stopped. I mean, um, you know, Paul kind of goes in and does Paul for whatever and does, um, you know, he'll make solo records once in a while or do this, that, and the other thing, but then not a lot of touring involved and that kind of thing. I've pretty much been touring and playing since we broke up. Yeah. I haven't really stopped. And that's because I still love doing it. Um, I still love the process. Um, I, I still like, you know, writing songs. You can tell I've got a new record out like in 40 years in, um, you know, I still like doing it. So it wasn't, it, to me, it's like, okay, I'm still working it. You know, we're going to do the replacement songs for, okay, cool. Let's do that. It'd be fun. Wasn't like, um, I don't sit and get caught up in the, uh, uh, in the, the glitz and glam and the, you know, the, all the pomp and circumstance of it all. I just, I kind of like look at it as cool. This is just sounds like a good thing. Let's go do that for a while. And it's more of an, you know, I'm That's along great. for the adventure. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't really get, I don't get caught up in all the history and all the crap. Well, Cause you never stop. And it is really, I don't know. It seems like it professionally, it's the only world you've ever known. Like, like yeah. in terms of jobs, like, was there ever a point where you're like, maybe I do want to leave or maybe I do want to step back? You know, like Greg Norton was just on the podcast and talked about at the end of Husker Du being like, you know, becoming a chef, you know, walking yeah. away from it all. Yeah. Like, were you, Was that ever in your mind or has this been because no. this is you? It be Yeah, because I started so young. I think um, it became me when I was very young. Um, I... I I can't imagine being anything else. Although I always kind of fancied myself um, a closet weatherman. I always thought that um, <laughs> if I were to want to be anything else, it would have been a weatherman. Um, always, <laughs> weather's always been intriguing to me, and I've always thought it, I'd be a good weatherman. <laughs> wow. Do you study it at all? Or like, do you know about not, it? I don't. Not really. Not really. I just, it's always been something that's intrigued me. And I always kind of, and, and Paul and I kind of joke about this back in the day. I think he felt the same. I think he kind of felt like he wanted to be a weatherman. <laughs> we might have had that in common, actually. But um, <laughs> if, either that or might have been just a drunken conversation once. But um, I, I, it's the only thing I really could have seen myself doing otherwise. Wow. Do you ever go back and revisit any of that sort of twin tone stuff from back then, even like the stuff just before you, like in terms of like the suburbs or the spooks or fill in the blanks, even the wad, the wad. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't heard that stuff since the 1900s, uh, <laughs> late 1900s um, at that. Uh, don't, um, 
Yeah, you know, I don't look back too much. I always and I I try to try my best to not look too far ahead either. Um, yeah. You know, when I when I I mean, I'm but I'm as I say that I'm getting turned on by, you know, new stuff from way back as we speak. Like I went and saw you know, went to eat last night here in Hudson, went to have Thai food. And there was a gentleman playing piano who used to play with Sonny Rollins and Chet Baker. Wow. The guy is ripping jazz tunes. And we were just, wow, that's, wow, that's that Cy Coleman song. That's, I just was listening to, I mean, it's like, it was like, wow, all this great stuff. And this guy was fantastic. Wow. Um, I even so much, I got a, Oh, what was his fucking name? I got to remember this. It was so, it was so good. It was so good. Um, I'll edit it so this will come to you instantaneously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this guy Armin Danelian, Armin A R M E N Danelian. Man, he was fantastic, and he's playing again next Sunday. And I told my buddy Larry, we got to go see go see him. Um, yeah, my buddy Larry started a was one of the people, one of the crew of people that started um, Comedy Central, um, older oh. gentle, an older gentleman <laughs> at 56, I'm saying, an older gentleman, <laughs> right, right. My, my really good buddy, we have, he's a good friend of ours, and uh, yeah, I think we're gonna go see him on Sunday again, but yeah, you know, keep your ears open, I always say. Yep. Yeah, well, you just learned about the Tulsa Jacks today, too. Yeah, you're constantly getting turned on to this stuff. Also, I learned because I guess it slipped by me listening to Trouble Boys again. Uh, Paul Stark recorded Yanni's early recordings. Did you ever run into Yanni in Minneapolis? What, yeah, apparently, no, I, Yanni I mean, went to the University of Minneapolis done. and uh, an early demo session. Was done uh, by Paul Star. I'm, I'm, maybe I misremember, but it is in Minneapolis wow. at that studio. Wow! Uh, unbelievable. I, I, what does Yanni play again? I, I, I don't. Uh, godly angels. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I thought he, he was he was a pianist. Is it? It's like it's, but it's a lot of keyboards, John. It's like it? so oh, many okay. keyboards that it becomes kind of like a computer. like a Rick Wakeman kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think Rick Wake, Wakeman would blush at this. Yeah. <laughs> this has been absolutely unbelievable and i can't thank both of you enough for uh joining me today and uh john if it's okay with you tommy i'm gonna throw the last question to yourself if there's anything you'd want to ask tommy all right this is something very small but i've always been curious about it replacements era 84 83 like you said you you had so many different influences and it all came together in a way that you could play rock clubs with like regular rock bands. What were those moments like when you're on the road and Peter Jesperson says, all right, we just played wherever this club tomorrow's show is at a hall with suicidal tendencies and fang. Like, were you, did, did you have like another battle plan? Like for, for a hardcore show, like here's, here's what we're not going to do, or here's what we're going to do. Was, was there ever any thought that went into it? You know, no, we would, we would show up and assess, you know, on a whim, on a, on a moment. We didn't really, we didn't really have a battle plan. We yeah. would kind of, I mean, if, if something seemed to, if something seemed particularly goofy, we'd roll with it in a, our own kind of way. Um, 
oftentimes oftentimes going the opposite direction of what the norm might be for that particular event right um uh which ultimately ended up us shooting ourselves in the foot right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and getting Always. your tires flashed yeah i mean we uh we were kings of of that but yeah. really it came down to just we could never conform we could never be like uh one like our audience that liked us want us to continue to be which right. you know we were never a hardcore band anymore than we were a punk band we just played our songs faster and we right. you know once that moved and we changed and evolved from that people were like oh we want to hear something more like stink and you're playing fucking you know uh can't really wait now and like what the fuck you know it's yeah. it's like you know keep the people want to keep you in that bubble never could do it Fuck still, the bubble. Still, I still can't do it with my new records no? and my records that I'll be making years from now. You'll never, you're going to hear a little bit of everything always. That's why, that's why you're one of the kings of rock, man. Seriously. Well, and, and I would yeah. go one further. That's why you're one of the kings of punk, Tommy. Yes. Uh, in spite of what you say. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll take a load of that crap. <laughs> Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.